I don't communicate in memes, but there's a famous meme of like a person looking at the water and about to crash on them. Mm. And I said to Steve, I said, that's how I feel. I feel like the world is just literally about to explode on me. Meet Don McGregor. Alongside Stephen Bartlett, Don was one of the co-founders of the social media agency, Social Chain. Dom's now a founding partner in his latest project, Fearless Adventures, an e-commerce-focused investment company. He's still only 28, but Dom has been a leader in the social media marketing space since he first dropped out of university to live a nomadic lifestyle in the early days of his business. Social Chain became known for making things trend on demand, and they went on to work with some of the biggest companies in the world, like Amazon and Coca-Cola. In this episode of We Built This City, I wanted you to hear about what it's like to run such a successful business right at the very start of your career, when there's still so much to learn, not just about business, but about yourself too. I'm Lisa Morton, the founder of Roland Ransfield PR, and this is We Built This City. Dom, thanks so much for joining me on We Built This City. Thank you for having me. So you're an adopted Manc and you come to Manchester eight years ago to join Steve Bartlett in a business which was to become Social Chain, one of the UK's first social marketing agencies. And we'll talk about that. And you put solid roots down in Manchester, now having bought a house in South Manchester recently with your fiance Georgina, in the past few months. Originally from York, we went to uni for a bit in yep. Edinburgh. Do you feel like Manchester has adopted you? That's a great question because that's exactly how I kind of describe what Manchester did for social chain as well. Is like the city opened its arms, the people opened its arms and said, yes, we want you here. And you know, it's like when you feel so emotionally connected to your business that you take that personally. So I took that very personally as well as that the city kind of opened its arms to me. It opened its arms to our team and it wanted us here. And I've always felt that sense of being welcome. Um, So yeah, I feel like, you know, Manchester has has adopted me, it's made me who I am today. Well, I remember, obviously, we were in the same building that you moved into in Portland Street, and we were there for a long time. And it did feel like you'd always been there. I have to say, you moved in, you made it your own. Um, your dogs were in our office and all that kind of stuff. And we'd talked about that before as well. They used to come and leave us a little gift occasionally before a big client meeting. But um, we definitely felt that you made a noise and you really... You know, you've embraced Manchester, Manchester embraced you at the time. So it's great. And we'll talk about that. You've recently launched a new venture, which is started at breakneck pace called Fearless Adventurers. And we'll come to that shortly. But first of all, can you tell me how running out of toilet paper started your entrepreneurial journey? Oh, God, that's my favorite question. Um, I mean, yeah, I always look back to like people always ask me what entrepreneurs are. And, you know, I never was that kid at school who was selling sweets. So for me, my kind of like first experience of entrepreneurship and like doing something for myself, I guess, um, came at university when I ran out of toilet paper. And instead of doing like the usual thing and like going down and buying more toilet paper, I was like, for some reason, people need to know about this. (laughs) And like, not just any people, but like other students. So I'm going to document my life as a student having problems. So um, I logged into Twitter and created student problems um and I tweeted that tweet and I got one retweet and one like which was from me (laughs) so for some reason I decided that carrying on with student problems was the right thing to do and quickly grew that from just me tweeting about running out of toilet paper to uh, a community of you know over 50,000 students talking about problems and everything that was going on at university at the time so yeah that was the kind of first experience of like having something and I guess the next thing is how you change that into something mm. um and it was that that was a twitter account you know in the time when social media was kind of a lot of skeptics around it and people were asking what social media is going to be in the future managed to turn that into something which became the center and the nucleus of what social team was going to be and what we basically realized was one day was that we could post content on twitter pages or facebook pages and send them to websites and for us we kind of realized that that was valuable for people because at like 18 19 years old we didn't really know marketing we didn't really know what even what an agency was but we understood that owning eyeballs and a community of people was going to be valuable to someone we just had to tell the world what we were doing and hopefully those people who found this community um, interesting and useful for them will find us and that's what 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 kind of social chain was born from was owning big communities and telling the world that we own them and then telling brands that they should be posting on them 
Mm. Like you say, you're kind of finding your way, you understood the power of social media, but it's about that building that audience, isn't it? And those relationships and, and having content that's completely relevant to know who's listening, who's got eyeballs on it. Yeah, and we were a bunch of kids running student pages, so that was obviously going to mm. be very kind of authentic. Mm. So everyone talks about kind of content is being king, authenticity and social media, but you know, we did it by accident and that was kind of one of the, the kind of powerful parts of the story is that we were just kids in our bedrooms who are, were doing this for fun. So when brands looked at social media and were like, okay, how are we going to navigate this crazy platform? You know, not just one, but Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Vine, you know, all these kind of things that pop up in social media. It's like, how are we going to navigate them? Of course, being being kids who've done it ourselves put us in a good position to um, be the person brands turn to. And we always kind of then had to make sure that we had the professional side of it as well. And, you know, people could trust us with big budgets and things like that. And so how did Steve find you? So student problems was kind of growing pretty quickly. And, you know, I think this is before the messaging button even existed on Twitter. It's definitely before, you know, the term DMs was around. But um, I put an email address in the the bio. Mm. I think it was like reach reach students at hotmail.com, something like that. Because I was thinking, okay, well, you know, I'm at university here, so maybe some brands will want to reach students and I can make some money here. Side hustle, you know, as people talk about now. So um, did that and I got a couple of emails from people um, and I was like, Okay, not interesting, not interesting. And then this one guy kept email called Steve Bartlett. And like the email, you know, it didn't really say anything particular. It was just like, hey, love what you're doing, want to chat, um, here's my number. And I was like, okay. So rang him and he was like, I'd just love to meet and understand what you're doing, who you are. And I was like, cool. So I decided to meet him. We met in a bar in York and he talked me through what he was trying to build with Wallpark, which is basically Gumtree for students. He asked me what my plans were for the page. And I said, you know, I don't know, you know, I've got students here, what are students like? They'll buy t-shirts, they might buy, and actually one of my first ideas I had was um, selling them cutlery kits, because like, you know, one of the tweets that I did really well is like, never been able to find a fork at university. <laughs> and so I was like, and I wasn't thinking, you know, beyond that. And we kind of came up with this conclusion, if we came together to build more communities for Wallpark, we could send more people there, and therefore we could turn that into something. And I was kind of bought into that idea I'm just doing something and I always say university is about opportunities and in life opportunities come across people and it's just been able to say okay I'll give that one a go that sets people aside and did Steve ask you to drop out of university or what was that kind of a there was kind of the trigger there it was kind of a mutual decision you know there was a, a boat that was passing and it was like okay you're either coming on the boat or you're not coming on the boat and I'm an all or nothings person so I'm not going to do something half-heartedly so I'm not going to try and make it work while at university because therefore you just do two things badly so for me, it was an opportunity to say, okay, I'm going to go on this boat for a bit. I'm going to see where it takes me. I had the kind of security of dropping out and knowing that I'll go back in a year. So I thought, you know, I'm going to put it all in for a year and see where we end up. And how soon into your studying were you then? Two years in. Right, gosh. Yeah. Okay. It's quite far. Brave. And what do your parents say about that? I mean, thankfully, they were kind of, they're a bit like they fair with these kind of things and said, if you want to do it, do it, you know. And again, the kind of crux of having that, being able to go back was kind of the sweet point of you not leaving something about holding onto a branch still you could go in seeing and then learning and figuring out what happens in 12 months time mm. worst that happens i was a year behind everyone it's not a big deal and did you come to manchester because we're steve there or what was the uh so we were first based in manchester so steve was based in manchester and i moved to leeds and i was kind of like responsible for that that kind of territory because Wallpark was geographical mm. and then Wallpark ceased because we kind of realized the model wasn't working but then we had these social media pages and when we started to realize the social media's was getting a bit of traction and we getting a bit of money, we decided to go travel the world. So we did this kind of nomadic lifestyle before, before it was cool, really. You know, if we had, I think Instagram was just released or something and, you know, everyone was talking about Tumblr and you're like, you should blog what you're doing on these travels and stuff. Um, we didn't. I think, I think I wrote one Tumblr blog and I don't know if it still exists because I don't know if Tumblr still exists, but I wrote a Tumblr blog on the first day in Thailand and what it was like. But we did the nomadic lifestyle for a bit. We went to Thailand, went to Brazil, went to San Francisco, worked in Silicon Valley for a bit, went to New York. And we just traveled off the back of these social media pages because people were paying us money to post. So it was a great, great time in our lives. And then we came back to London and one of the clients turned to us and said, do you want some money? Uh, so we ummed and nahed about that for a couple of months and decided to take investment. And they gave us some space in their office. And then that's kind of when the deal to Manchester happened because we looked at what we could get in London. We looked at what our life would be like in London, you know, friends living in different zones, you know, hiring people on ridiculous starting salaries, getting the underground everywhere. And we thought, don't want this life. You know, we have just come back from sitting on the beach. 
<laughs> being able to get, get on a plane and go anywhere and all these kind of things that we decided that we'll put lifestyle first. But we looked in Manchester what we could get for an apartment size. It was probably, not lying, five times the size you could get in London for the same price. So we got that and then started looking at offices in Manchester. And again, probably five times the size of what you could get for the same price. And that kind of was the key element of social chain becoming something because we had this, suddenly had all this space and it was like, how are we going to fill it? You know, we had this budget for this office, but we're like, how are we going to fill it? And then I think at the time when we first agreed on the, the, the office in Manchester, we must have had a team of about eight people. Mm-hmm. And then that's when we came up with the ideas of, okay, we'll put a slide in, we'll put a ball pit, we'll put a bar in. And it was all the space, the blueprint of the space, and you've seen it and people mm-hmm. will see it. It's got beautiful high ceilings. It had the beautiful wooden floors and it was just so, so big. We just allowed us to think big and dream big. So that for us, that transition of going from working in our investor's office in London, where we had six white desks, mm-hmm. to having this kind of entire open-aired, old factory space was like heaven mm. yeah that for us was a big defining moment in the business because then it allowed us to begin the journey of what social shame got known for and when you moved into our building i mean that was a very kind of corporate space it was beautiful space wasn't it but it was very corporate and um it just felt that you brought all this youth and excitement and lots of colored balls and lots of dogs <laughs> into the building it's amazing and I, i'll never forget one day we were on the office and then we just somebody gone out to get some coffees or something. And there were just tons of screaming young people outside the offices. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And they were just kind of surrounding. You couldn't get up the steps. And they were um, there's some YouTuber in the building. We were like, what the hell is going on? And then we realised that you're onto something that we weren't yet onto. And it was absolutely bonkers, but it was it was a great time. And what were the early days of social chain like? So you say, you know, you got that space. There was none in it. And then you had that massive growth. Were you making it up as you went along or how um, was it? You know, there's a couple of defining moments where you kind of enter the growth stage and then you have to think again and then you go again. Um, we probably in the early days those probably came a lot quicker for us than they did for a lot of other companies only in hindsight now can we look back and realise that how much the social media was a gold rush if someone starts a social media agency now they're not going to get any press but what we were doing at the time was like crazy you know we, I remember still speaking to brands that are in the FTSE 100 trying to convince them to have Instagram Yeah, you wouldn't need to do that now mm. you'd never need to convince them you know maybe it might take a bit of time to get through corporate to get to TikTok but you know, people understand the power of it. But what we were trying to do is educate people. Um, and we came at this really beautiful part where, again, we'd shown we can do what we say we're doing because we've grown these communities. But the the rest of the world, as you said there, something we were on something you weren't even not aware about yet. We were playing at that kind of new age, probably like where the metaverse is now, I guess. Mm. So that kind of really helped because, you know, things were just growing organically. But then we had a couple of defining moments where things just went, wow. And they were rapid, rapid spikes of growth. So I think the first one was we launched our own app and we'd been a game. It got 2 million downloads and went to the morning of the app store. And we were like, wow, this is so, so powerful. And then we had a couple of case studies with likes of Boohoo, working with influencers where influencer marketing was really, really new as well, you know. And we had a couple of events that we spoke at, which kind of, Again, we, we were able to make things trend live on basically on request. Mm-hmm. So BuzzFeed came in and asked us to do that when we were in the together space, which is just for us was like the tiny little space. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in that board room, which backs onto your office. And it was like the guy from BuzzFeed said, can you make this trend? And we were like, um, no idea. <laughs> we'll try. <laughs> and basically he was coming to like a, an expose, I guess, was all, kind of his initial angle. But then he realized that, we actually were who we said we were because mm-hmm. that was one of our claims that we could make anything the most talked about thing in 20 minutes and we did it. So that went on to number one in BuzzFeed. After that, you know, every big client you can imagine in the entertainment space, you know, Disney, Fox, all those kind of, you know, big co- companies just started bombarding us because young people were notoriously hard to reach. You know, you had to pay a lot of money on Channel 4 or, you know, BBC 3 was winding down. It's like, how do you speak to young people? And you know, we had a solution for that. So right place, right time definitely played a factor. And, you know, we had these mon- monumental moments where things just started to click and we started to get a lot of briefs in and we started to win a lot of work. And it was the very early days of social media. And then we kind of had, as a business, you know, we had to evolve because we realized that projects and campaigns and, you know, the early days of everyone trying to do a um, flash mob or whatever, you know, had a life, mm-hmm. had a kind of expiry date and that social media needs to, to be approached with a strategy. You need to really think about things. So we went through that kind of process again where we 
evolve the business from a campaign PR fun trending business to a okay no let's actually talk seriously about strategy for a bit and you know what are you doing as a business across social media but I think a couple of years into the business maybe around 2016 time we had to really sit down and look at ourselves and said okay how are we going to make this what is the business of the future in social media what do we need to do how do we need to position ourselves where do we go with these things and that was the kind of probably the first time we really planned a strategy for ourselves you know so um yeah you know at first we were making it up you know you've got to be you'd be stupid to say we weren't making it up but eventually we got to the point where we knew we knew social but we knew we didn't know the rest of the world so we had to bring in people who could help us translate what we were doing and what we were thinking to kind of the wider social media marketing agency landscape and that was a real sense of that and there were some detractors weren't well there were a lot of detractors I remember at the time but the other like traditional agencies are going oh it'll never fly it won't work it'll be over as we flash in the pan but there was a real sense of maturity I think I think we know that was noticeable in terms of you know how you so quickly you got up to speed of very young people had a really serious you know business and, and a great team there mm-hmm. we had no choice though yeah no absolutely <laughs> You're only 28 now, and what I really see the relevance of your contribution to help build this city is the fact that you've brought so many young people through, you've trained them, you've kind of contributed and, and created investment for the city, and started a lot of young people out on their journey around digital, creative, social media. Do you kind of take stock of that sometimes? Yeah, I, I posted on my LinkedIn the other day. Is that like, the thing I'm most proud about is the people at Social Chain who have gone on to make some great businesses. This isn't self-created, but there is some kind of slang going on at the moment about the uh, social chain mafia, which is ex-social chainers who are doing things, you know, because mm. they were, you know, they had that social chain kind of experience. And it's probably a lot of people talk about the Claudewell influence with, you know, the Hook Group and mm. AO coming off the back of that, which is great. And for me, I would never be happier if one of the people that was at Social Chain goes on to found a great business, which goes and is worth hundreds of millions. Mm. You know, I'd love that. Mm. So yeah, you know, that for me is a legacy part of social chain which at the, mo- at the time you're not trying to ever think about no. you're not sitting there thinking oh i wish people would make great business but it's one of the things when in hindsight being out of it and then be able to look at goes yeah that, that we did something right there and mm. we, we we made some we made a difference to people's lives and mm. i think when that was the biggest thing for me personally is when we started going from a, you know two three four of us to hiring other people and them starting to have their lives and starting to get ha- houses and then someone had a bloody kid i was like oh my god suddenly we're now responsible for these people <laughs> yeah. i'm like oh my god that like weight of responsibility was like it was cool and it was like pressure and it kind of really inspired me because i knew that we had all these people that were working for us we had all these people who you know were making life decisions based on trusting what we were saying to them basically you yeah. know if you're going to buy a house it's because you trust the future's going to be better and if you're at social chain you trust your future's going to be better at social chain so therefore you have to trust us so i'm like wow this is kind of big stuff now so the people side of things is the one of the things that i'm most grateful for i completely agree with that i mean we've you know i think 25 years of a business and there are so many friendships been created of people who've worked with Roland Ransfield and they've gone on to have their own businesses or they've freelanced or they've gone on to other great jobs and you know there's a massive group of people who I feel it's all about that relationship building and you know so it's yeah they've advanced their careers but also they've just got some lifelong friendships out of it and we have kind of iterations of Roland Ransfield over the years where there was a certain vibe or a certain culture at the time but it's just fantastic to see this network of people who've yeah. stayed friends. Yeah and exactly and I think the the great part, again, is once you remove the business aspect, you you have friends left, mm. you know, and social chain, again, we have the community, we have the culture, but being in charge, you question it every now and again. You yeah. question whether people are loyal to you or they like you because end of the day, you know, you're running the show. So you're like, oh God, who's fake and who's real? And then being able to remove yourself from that situation and being no longer be there, you go, actually, these friendships were real. Mm. Some weren't. Mm. And, you know, some people were playing the system playing the game and you're not supposed to me since i left which is fine but other people you go okay that's actually very genuine and i i like that person mm. again in hindsight being able to have those friendships and don't have work convoluting whether where the line sits has definitely been a great part of, of looking back and saying okay that was that was that was special but the reward when that kind of works out yeah is great the reward's it? huge yeah. you know seeing you know my, my best part is seeing people grow and seeing people learn you know hattie who's not in here today because she's in cornwall she started off associate as an apprentice. She came in, didn't want to go to university, didn't know what she wanted to do with her life, and we brought her in. She spent three, three and a half years in the social media team, grew up, grew up um, and now is marketing manager at Fearless. And 
I mean, her growth trajectory versus other people that went to university is just second to none. Yeah. That's the reason I did it. Jess, who sat over there, she was she came in again, just finished her exams as ACCA um, accountancy, and now is running the show here. So, you know, the people side of things is is the reason you get out of bed in the morning. Definitely. And what would you also say in terms of you just mentioned before that you've been working alongside some of those like global brands? Is there anything that you learn, you, like a small organisation suddenly talking to like Amazon? What was any learnings from that? <laughs> I mean, you probably you know it as well, but when you put an invoice in and expect it to be paid, it's not going to get paid. <laughs> uh, it doesn't work like that. No. Uh, that was a big learning curve. But I, I also think that I remember being very proud of working with Coca-Cola, but then someone said to me, oh, Coca-Cola work with most agencies. So therefore, statistically, you're most likely to work with Coca-Cola if you're an agency. Rather than being like the one agency of merit for mm-hmm. a flying company, you're just on a roster. Um, so actually, the fulfillment piece was probably what I learned didn't exist. It's the people you work with don't really care how well it performs. You know, they're in big organizations, the ability they have to really impact things is very low, mm-hmm. really low. When you think about the size of someone like Coca-Cola, for example, is a marketing manager making one decision in, in a one region going to shift the needle when it comes to anything? Mm. No, not really. It's not, is it? It's not going to mm. make a big difference. But when in the early days when we were speaking with founders, when we were dealing with people who it directly impacted, those I much prefer those times. Mm. And kind of, as I said before, fearless is, is, is all about that. It's all about working with the founders to achieve their ambitions rather than you know working with big organisations to make them do things and tick a box really so mm. that for me is probably the thing I learned most from working big organizations let's talk about that then so you came out of social chain in 2020 yeah yeah god is that two years two years ago my god well that's a pandemic for you isn't I know. it I know god <laughs> and social chain had kind of defined you I suppose as a young entrepreneur at that time was that a shock to your system when you made the decision to to move on I mean I thought I'd handle it better but there's been a part of me where it's all I knew. You know, I'd been conditioned for eight years to wake up every single day and drive down the A34 into Portland Street, park in Portland Street in the same car parking space, put the same pin code in. I still know the pin code, actually, just thinking about it. Um, <laughs> and then go up those steps and walk up into the office and put the pin code into the office and be like, okay, this is home. So, you know, anything you do for that long length of time over and over again, you're going to find it so difficult when you remove it. Mm-hmm. I probably backed myself to deal with it better, but, you know, there's, there's tears, you cry, you're happy, you're upset, you know, you, and then you have a bit of reflection, and you think, God, what am I going to do now? Who am I now? What am I? And that's difficult. That's a really, really difficult part for anyone to go through in, in life because it's an identity crisis, really. And, you know, people talk about midlife crisis, quarter-life crisis. You know, I, I felt like I had one. I felt like it was really real. So I had to figure it out, you know, and I, I tried a few things. I spoke to a few people. I networked. I, I met friends. I did all that kind of stuff where this is what I think you're supposed to do in those situations. And, and I, you know, I I, I thought, do I want to go and get a, a non-exec role? Do I want to go get a, a job? Do I want to go sit on a beach and do nothing and serve coconuts? <laughs> do I want to go open a shack and make sandwiches? Like, what did I want to do? All these, you know, I went for everything. So, um, yeah, I didn't cope with it very well. It, was, it wasn't it wasn't exactly like a, a bounce off. and was like, okay, this is what the world looks like next. I'm going to go straight into fearless. This is going to be the future. And it was only only when, a combination of a couple of things, really reflecting on social chain, you know, really reflecting on what part I enjoyed. Mm. You know, what was the enjoyable part? Um, and it was two to 20 that, that period of time when you you know you're scaling the company you're doing the exciting stuff I really help people I really like helping people you know across helping people in jobs develop but also helping people who run companies grow and earn that I think there's some issues with the investment market when it comes to private equity VCs um, and I think there's some issues with the agency space when it comes to kind of alignment and transparency especially when it comes to social media and the fact that anyone now who's got a computer can start an agency mm. so taking all those kind of experiences in, into play I kind of said okay well I want to do something which solves these problems and Charlie and David who are the founding partners of Link Fearless alongside me we spent a lot of time speaking because David had left his company Charlie left his company um, during the summer and we just ended up jumping on calls of entrepreneurs finding out what they're trying to do whether they're going to sell their business or what their dreams are and we ultimately decided that we can help business help these entrepreneurs achieve what they want to achieve and what that looked like it we didn't know but we knew that was what we wanted to do so over the next couple of months we kind of blended something that that kind of was going to work uh, and it was only when we were in london in a hotel room 
bashing out, are we going to turn this into a business, a brand, what are we going to do, blah, blah, blah. That we decided, yeah, let's go for it. Let's make it something. And I remember saying to the guys, this is the most enjoyable part of it. This is the, the time when you've got to remember that this is why we're doing it. We sat there in this room and we said, this is going to be the most fun it's ever been. Sat there, drawing on a piece of paper, the logo, a name, a website. And it's like, let's do it. And you get that excitement <laughs> and you get that kind of sense of like purpose again. And then, yeah, that was kind of the birth to this. So it wasn't a straight line. It wasn't an easy road. It wasn't like I left social chain with this master plan or an idea, but I knew that a bit of time and a bit of perspective on things will help me decide what I want to do. And I love the name. So yeah, yeah I absolutely right. love it. And it's kind of how you were when you set up social chain. It's one, of, it's one of our values, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so exactly. I thought, I'll take that. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. And so what's your ambition with this business now? So social chain, you know, the ambition was to grow it as quick as we can and sell it and move on. With this, this is something again where I feel like I never need to leave it, never need to, to ever exit it. It's just about building a business in a platform which supports others in achieving their aims. We're continuing to invest into companies, we're going to launch a fund, we're going to launch an academy, but it's all about, you know, business is a, is a game of people, you know, it's about having the right people in place and being able to operate effectively with those people. So, therefore if we can help people get the right team around them they can be trained in the right way they can have the right access to funding they can have the right support around them from decisions to make i think this business can live forever in a sense of there's always going to be businesses that need support there's always going to be new areas to play on there's going to be new frontiers as long as we play there and support businesses who are needing support and wanting to grow that's what we can do and have you had a lot of interest since you set the business up we met a lot of people. We met a lot of people, yeah. Uh, I, think we like six, I think we speak as like 600 businesses at the moment. 600? Yeah, yeah people wow. in businesses, yeah. Wow, that's incredible. And when you were speaking to um, Prolific North, obviously people listening might know it's the Northwest Creative Media publication, you said that you felt personally obliged from an entrepreneurial perspective to move into the world of investment. So what is it about the investment industry that attracts you so much, would you say? I've been able to look into an entrepreneur's eyes and say, I know how you feel. I know what you're thinking right now, because I've been there, mm. is... Two things. I think it's the most warming, reassuring thing an entrepreneur can hear because they know you're on their side. And I think in the investment world and in the VC world, there's the alignment's not always there when it comes to private equity and other places wanting the best for the entrepreneur. My belief is that if, if you generally want the best for the entrepreneur, that will be what's best for the business because the two of them are interlinked. Mm-hmm. I think that other people probably view the business and the founders differently and that probably assume that the founders one day are going to leave and what they're going to be left with. Mm. So, yeah, I think the obligation comes with the fact that I know how difficult the entrepreneur journey is. I know how lonely it can be. I know that you make mistakes and you feel like it's the end of the world. And I know there's some mistakes that are avoidable if you've got the right people around you. And it seems like helping other people to realise their dreams the way that you did to some degree is a real win-win situation so that your success comes only on the back of helping others find theirs. I get so much more fulfilment from seeing other people win than I do for myself. Mm. It's a completely perfect model because you help people realize their dreams and that makes you a much happier person yeah like i i can't see the world in a different way no that's the way i see the world and it's like creating all those legacies isn't it exactly. like many yeah. many and can you tell us a bit about the fearless academy so digital skills gap we all know about it you know we bank we read press articles about it but what does that actually mean so it means that the number of roles that are out there looking for people who've got digital skills is more than the applicants around there how do you solve that problem? Well, you can have less roles. That's not going to go any to any mm. anytime soon. There's going to be a kind of increase in number of roles required. Um, I think by 2030, the number of jobs is at 50% of the jobs that will exist don't have exist right now. Yeah. So that's not going to change. We can't slow that down. So therefore, we need to have more applicants, more people in those sectors who are capable of working in them, which I think is a massive paradox because you look at every single 18-year-old right now and they are digitally savvy Mm. they just don't know it they don't know the world that they can move into and i always remember driving down the a34 princess parkway um going through moss side levishume into manchester looking at the beef and tower and now the the four of the ones that built and the probably the six other ones that are there now thinking there's people in these areas in these shops in these streets young kids who are who are sat there making tiktoks making social media videos who are probably working as a delivery driver or something they're not enjoying who don't know their value who don't know their worth who don't know that people will pay a lot of money for their skill set and 
what I've seen in digital skills, especially when it comes to marketing and social media, is there's no quality control. There's no one sitting there to businesses and saying, look, I know you need this person for social media manager, okay? I know you, you, you're you looking for these six desired things, but really you just need this person mm. or the, these two people. And these two people together will make everything you need. And I've seen some stories of people wanting five years of experience in social media. I'm like, if you're in social media in 2017, working in social media in 2017, you were at the frontier. Mm. Like, that doesn't exist. Mm. But every single 21-year-old 20, has got five years experience in social media. Everyone. They're living on it. Mm. So for me, what I want Phyllis to be, I want the academy to be, is that, that buffer between businesses and underprivileged young people who are, don't understand their worth, don't understand their value, who want to be connected with jobs that they enjoy. Mm. And so that's our job is to find the jobs that, that exist in Manchester, find the young people that exist in Manchester and matchmake them through a training programme where we can come out of the other end and say, this person hasn't got five years, they've got a year, but they're good enough. Mm. And they're good enough for you, for you to pay them the salary they deserve for the five-year experience. I love that. And when are you starting that? We just got to be speaking with the Great Manchester Authorities. They're supporting us with this. We've got an application which is going to the Department of Education. Hopefully, it'll be in place for next financial year, which is April. Amazing. And more legacy work there. Love it. I read a, a blog that you did the other day, which is about your views on higher education and, and how valuable apprenticeships are. Obviously, You've got lived experience, haven't you, through the fact that you didn't need to follow that whole university path. I think in the last couple of years, with the pandemic, there's even been more impacts on young people, hasn't there? So, I mean, yep. do, you, do you see that as a really valuable way forward now? Yeah, and I think the way I approach it is, because I went to university, I had this period of time in my life where someone else was paying for mm. my rent and someone else was paying for my nights out <laughs> and my food. So I had time. I had time to think. I had time to try things and that was my dream world I would create some kind of model where that can exist for people where they don't have to worry about maybe it's universal basic income I don't know what it is but maybe we're, we're a period in life where you can just think what I want to do who I want to be because my issue with with university and my issue is that people go they go there for three years they live in city centres they get accustomed to a lifestyle and then once they leave university that lifestyle becomes something which is non-negotiable they're not going to go back home because they've had three years of freedom. They're not going to not live with their friends because everyone else is doing it. So suddenly then you have to get the situation where you're forced to get a job. And I do think you are forced to get a job because you need to carry on paying the rent. You need to carry on having the lifestyle you're having. You want to, you're enjoying life a little bit. You're comfortable. So therefore then you're on that kind of hamster wheel. With apprenticeships, what I think you get, and also, sorry, then you've got a massive debt over your head where you're like, mm. um, I can't go to university and not do anything. I've got to get a job. What I think you get with apprenticeships is, yes, you go straight into a job, but you're at a job at 18, so the pressure on you is relative. It's, it's big for an 18-year-old, and let's not get me wrong, but it's not career-defying. But you can learn, what you, you can start to learn what you enjoy. And also, when you're learning what you're enjoying, you're getting paid for it. You're not getting debt, you're getting paid for it. And again, you know, you're meeting people, you're making connections, and it's not moving you three years ahead of people who go to university. I think it's moving you light years ahead. Yeah. Because when those three years finish, you've got relationships, you've got connections, you know, you've got money in your bank, you've got all these kind of great things in life where, and you probably you probably live at home still, you know, because you're living locally, you're working locally, so you're saving money up. And you know what you can do then? You can buy your own house. It's not as easy as that. And I know I'm making general suits. Uh, statements and people have called me out for that on my LinkedIn but the when you look at the, the kind of facts you know you, you can earn probably in the three years of apprenticeships up to 50 60,000 a university costs you 50 60,000 that's a 120,000 pound swing on ec economic futures for people and even at university you're not guaranteed a job apprenticeships you're in a job you're progression you've been you could have been in an organization for three years three years in an organization is a lifetime you are part of the furniture then in a lot of situations and when it comes to like jobs and manager levels and next kind of promotions you're going to be in those contention you're going to be yeah. in a serious contention so yeah i think for certain places you know caveat again lawyers dentists etc fine go to university but i think if you really want to find out what you enjoy and you want to spend some time learning about yourself 
I think working for an apprenticeship is probably the best thing to do. I think it makes sense. And, you know, you talked about relationships there. And obviously for us as a business, I know um, I look back and I work with some of the people that I work with or knew or got to know when I did go to university, when I left. But you know, like they say, your network is your net worth, isn't it? And if you can start building those, I say to my kids and all the team, you know, you're what used to be your black book, what used to be your roller decks. They're the people that you can you can go to if you have integrity within those relationships as you go through your careers. And at university, those those are your friends and yeah. stuff. But you know, you're 21, 22 years old coming out of it where you don't you don't really know about the world. Mm. You've not seen the world. You've not experienced it. I mean, yes, doing placements help, but placements are a privilege because a lot of them are unpaid mm. and you can only really do them for six weeks during summer. I feel passionately about it mm. because I think that the weight, the, the weighting towards each of them is unfair. You know, university does have a role to play and if less people went to university, then I think it's better. But I think apprenticeships for the kind of opportunity they present themselves are still massively underweighted in terms of representation. Mm. Who you are, how your values as a person, what you've achieved is probably you know, it's always actually, not probably, it's always more valuable. But the point you make about values there, I mean, I think that's, again, you know, we changed the whole of our business around really getting clear on what our values were and communicating those both internally and externally. Once you set those, you bring in people, like you were just saying there, you're looking for people's values or what they've done before, the work ethic. You start to then really kind of qualify the types of people you want around you. And it doesn't yeah. matter just because they've got a first or because they've achieved something in another organisation. It's about how they show up in life, isn't it? So I'm interested, where are you on that? Again, what kind of values have got you through your life so far? So when I, that, that was the most important thing I did in my life when I stopped drinking. That's probably the only other time I've had a conversation with myself. Is like, who are you? Who are you as a person? What do you want to stand for? What do you want to be known for? And the the big reason was that the drunk version of me who used to drink a lot and used to be a horrible person wasn't representative of who I wanted to be. Mm. And I went through that process and I went through, you know, a lot of, support therapy like to figure that out and that it all kind of distilled down to not to the ego ego sense but like, what do you want people to say about you behind your back what do people say when you leave a room that's the kind of what you guys can say about me when you're on uh, getting the taxi home the car home <laughs> that's that that became a much more conscious piece of me mm. um and it all stemmed from you know the values i want to start as a person what are they mm. and are you happy to kind of talk about what triggered, you know, obviously you're very open about being dependent on alcohol for a while. Do you think that came with the territory of having all those pressures starting a business off so so early? Oh, I think it came with having the very noisy, noisy neighbours in the office. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, I mean, I mean, 100%, you know, it came from this difference between expectation well, reality and expectations. You know, I was, reality was kind of this, flying company everything was like amazing but like relative like what i was dealing with in terms of like business the cash flows paydays invoices not being paid people problems lawsuits it was like oh my god it was just you're getting drowned you're getting drowned and there's that there's that you know i don't communicate in memes but there's a famous meme of like the the water about to, a person looking at the water about to crash on them mm-hmm. and i said to steve I said, that's how i feel i feel like the world is just literally about to explode on me and alcohol was medicine alcohol was a release you know it it allows you to go into a state where these problems don't matter temporarily um but what that actually is it over time it compounds so the more and more you drink the more and more problems you have the more and more you drink to forget those problems the more and more actually those problems become more ingrained in you and then you create other problems be it friendships that are ruined be it relationships that are ruined be it physically doing damage to yourself be it putting on weight because you're drinking and eating terrible food all the time. So like it was just a horrible, horrible cycle of self-destruction and I, I couldn't cope. I think at the time I was 20 years old, that's when the kind of really bad patch happened from like Christmas when I was 22 to my 23rd birthday. And yeah, I just, just completely snowballed in in a, in a horrible cycle of self-destruction. So that's again coming back to what I want to do now is I know how difficult things can get when you run a company mm. and who else do you have to turn to I had no one to turn to mm. I had a co-founder who we didn't speak because didn't know we could speak about these things Yeah. so yeah you know I, I tried a bit of mentorship which helped for a little bit of a while but yeah it was product of, product of the environment and what was that point for you at which you thought I've got to sort this out was there a trigger there for kind of recovery or yeah I think 
it's very difficult because you know obviously I've got a little bit of hindsight survivor hindsight bias now because I've come through it but I do think and this is unfortunately something that I, I can't see past at the moment is I think the only way to change is to hit rock, hit rock bottom mm. I don't think you can make a change without actually sitting there and being like okay the only way actually is up now I've destroyed every, I've ruined everything I've got to make myself better so yeah I felt like I hit a rock bottom and for me that that was the moment I hurt other people hurting myself ruining my own relationships ruining my friendships you know that I could deal with but hurting other people that that is not conducive with my values at all mm. so I had a couple of moments where the girl I was seeing at the time who, you know, now unfortunately is my fiance. Um, <laughs> she'd say that, you know, it's, it's not as lovely. She wouldn't say where, you know, we start to see each other and she was like, who are you? You know, who is this person? Cause you're one person in the morning you're one person when you're drunk. And for like the first start of our relationship, I tried to hide that person from her, but eventually, you know, you have to do something together. And then it was a good friend of mine, Michael heaven, um, upsetting him as well. And those things happen very close together. And I was like, this is not me. This is, this is not, you know, and what helped was to be able to draw a difference between drunk Dom, who is this person who was doing these things and Dom, because Dom, who was in the day, who was uh, at social shame was probably the person you've seen today right in front of you. Drunk Dom is someone you couldn't even comprehend. So it was that I had to figure out what the problem was and why he was acting how he was because he was never like that before. Fun, you know, old drunk Dom, funnest guy to be around. God, he was so much fun. You know, I was all life and solo party, happiest drunk person in the world, but suddenly he became this horrible, horrible person. So yeah, it was a massive, massive kind of journey of self-discovery. And really brave and courageous to take that cold, hard look at yourself. Yeah. Um, hard. Yeah. Yeah, it's just look in the mirror and say you're the problem. It's mm-hmm. difficult. You've got a system, haven't you, called a cycle of change. Yeah. That documents the stages people go through when they're trying to make those changes in their life. So just tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so, you know, when people say they're caught in a horrible cycle or all that kind of stuff, it's, it's, it's linked to the idea of like how you actually create change. So like the first part is you've got to, and this is a lot of time, a lot of time where change doesn't happen because you've got to accept that change needs to happen. And that's the kind of first part of it. And that in itself isn't the answer. Then you you know you test the change. You try and come up with a, a rationale. Okay, so what I kind of did first is I consciously knew that I needed to change, and then you've got to actually act upon that. So just being like, okay, I need to make a change, isn't going to go anywhere. You know, we probably all think that sometimes, aren't we? I need to go to the gym. I need to eat healthier. Consciously, you think that probably a lot. But then you need to do an action. So you need to actually try and do something about that. Okay. So we're drinking. The first thing for me was like, oh, well, it's not drinking. That's the problem. It's maybe something else. So you try something and you figure out and you're like, no, no, no. And then you come to this realization that the thing that you need to make a change on is you've got to act on it now. So then if I, you then and kind of into the next stage of it where you take it out your life and, um, the next stage is a, a period of maintenance mm. and the circle is actually a three quarter circle because you can only ever maintain change. You can never complete change. So you, either that point there, you relapse and then you complete the circle again. Okay. So currently yeah. I'm sat here at like yeah. nine, nine o'clock yeah. in the maintenance stage. And the only, and then when you get the idea of being a horrible cycle, you're about to relapse. So I'm sat here in the cycle of change right now. And this is something when people ask me whether I'm going to drink again, it's like, no, because then the cycle just starts again. Yeah. But no, I'm sat here at maintenance right now. Well, that's a massive achievement, isn't it? I mean, and that makes real sense of that in actual fact. You're very open also about supporting and about talking about mental health issues. Like you say, when you and Steve started the business in 2014, that wasn't something that we, we talked about and certainly men didn't talk about. So you're very keen to and encouraging people to share the problems. I, I thought... I never had any issues in mental health up to the age of 22. Never, never, no self-doubt, no question marks, no anxiety, no depression. My life was like, I lived a beautiful life. Is you know, I look back and think, oh, growing up, I was so blessed, you know. Only in hindsight, I've started to speak to friends who have been like, oh yeah, I had anxiety around GCCs at 17, or eight, 16. I was like, really? Mm -hmm. I was like, never, never. I, I kind of coasted on this cloud of like, contentment in life where everything was going to be fine i had a kind of a sense of self-confidence and 
And that's probably why it hit me like a, a brick wall because I was like, suddenly, what is this? Yeah. I remember, you know, saying, I hear, I've got a voice in my head. I'm like, what the hell is that voice in the head? Never had that before. The mental health movement kind of discovered about it from my own experience, you know. I end up having to discover that I've, you know, I've got severe anxiety, a bit of imposter syndrome, you know, borderline depression. And I was like, oh, what's that mean? <laughs> and then you start understanding more about mental health and then you start to see that everyone else has it and these are just natural occurrences in the body. And f- uh, thankfully, I could relate it back to sport a little bit because like, you can understand like how these things happen and how it impacts performance and how, you know, if you're not feeling the best, it's not going to be able to make the most of what you're doing. Um, because that, that for me was like being able to rationalize it against something I really understand. Mm. We've all got that kind of point where we understand ourselves a little bit better. But I think the, the thing that's missing for me is like, like what actions do you take? Mm. You know, people are getting to the point now where they're quite happy living with their mental health. And sometimes it defines people, but you can remove these things. You can improve the sense of it by making very tangible decisions in your life. And that's what I kind of talk about with sobriety is that, it's not just like something I had to do. It's also like the best thing I've ever done for mental health. Mm. And if you've got anxiety or if you've got depression or if you're struggling with anything else, removing alcohol is the best thing you can do. Single-handedly the best thing you can do. Yeah, I think we're at a point now with mental health where it's more about actions rather than awareness. There's a couple of things. I mean, I've noticed a real movement towards sobriety in Manchester in particular. Yeah. A lot of business people now are deciding that they're going to take that out of their lives. I, I, I am from influencer marketing, you know, I do. <laughs> that is the background. <laughs> yes, of course. Well, they're all following you for sure. Um, but talking about, you know, mental health, you mentioned before about life's not like it is on Instagram. By the same token, you, you know, that's part of the business that you've built. And in 2014, people weren't perhaps as bothered about showing themselves in a certain way. And I think yep. you know, there's no doubt that has had impact, particularly on, on very young people. But when I started my career, there was a culture of bullying and toxicity in businesses. And my first couple of jobs, I'd go home and cry quite regularly. And I just thought that's where I've got to go for the first few years. That's kind of the the first part of your career. You've got to put up with that, puts hairs on your chest. But I mean, they're just unheard of now, isn't it? So yeah. are you conscious in terms of the way you've set up social chain and, and the business now that all these things are out on the table, that you're very supportive of your team? I don't think people knew there was an eruption. Mm. I think, you know, legacy of Victorian kind of mindset and attitudes. I don't think people knew there was another way of doing things. I didn't think people knew that getting the best out of people was something you could do for me nice to them rather than cranking a whip. Mm. Um, you look at football managers they've all got different philosophies some of them are focused on tactics managers some of them just are cheerleaders really so for us being able to take learnings from Silicon Valley being out there and you know seeing what impact culture has we were convinced there could be another way of doing things and I think again when people ask me about leadership and having like the transparency I have and the openness I have like hopefully I'm proof that there is another way there's always other ways to do things and those methods resonate with different people some people might not like my openness some people might not like the fact that i'm sober but i think the people that are here and people that were social chain respected that way Mm. so yeah you know it's not for everyone but it definitely creates a a sense that is for some people and i think talking about setting your values when you feel that that's right for you you can stand by them can't you and if people disagree you know that they're kind of yeah everyone here knows who i am yeah everyone really knows who i am what i stand for and I'm open, I don't, I'm not hiding anything. And therefore, when things go wrong or people make decisions that are against my values or, you know, something happens, then I can just point to that and say, that's not what I'd have done. Or this is how I'd approach it. Or why well, would think about it this way? Mm. So you talked about fearless being one of the values at Social Chain. So is there any of our values that kind of stood out for you? Um, the uh, don't be a... Yeah. D apostrophe, 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 apostrophe. I didn't know it meant that. I thought I meant don't be Dominic. Uh, I was like, oh, okay, I'm taking this one personally then. But that one stuck out to me because um, I think a lot of people a lot of people say that one as well. And I think it, it rings true. Mm. Um, every single room it rings true in. It's quite simple, isn't it? It's so really that's what it does on the tin. And just in terms of legacy, we know you're only 28, so I don't want to be kind of talking uh, you into, a, into retirement. But what do you think you want your legacy to be ultimately? I think going back to that kind of what what people say about him behind his back, some people don't care what people say. You know, maybe I'm a little bit more conscious of leaving a good impression on people. Um, so yeah, I think that just people say, "Oh, he's, he's a nice guy." Mm-hmm. It's probably enough for me. Oh, that's lovely, and it's enough for anyone. I think that exactly. isn't it. So right, quick fire round. First of all, where in Manchester do you feel that you can be most creatively inspired? 
I think it's probably changed, but I think the, you know, I'd have said social change office, but um, not not being able to go back in there because I don't have a key. Uh, <laughs> you know, being just being in a bar in Northern Quarter around people, seeing different types of mindsets. So yeah, feel good club. So, you know, yeah. that's that's probably nice. the place where you can feel most creative. Yeah, I love it in there because we do yeah. some work with Court Live and it's over the road, so I've been going there quite a lot. It's really nice. Lots of dogs. Lots of dogs. Great people. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. There. And what would you say is Manchester's best export? A34. <laughs> love it. You must have mentioned that about six times. I, I, I love my roads. No, the best thing is quite Manchester. Um, oh, see, I'm not a football fan, so I can't say Manchester United. Um, I would say I think the best thing to quite Manchester, it's not a thing, it's not a single thing, it's a mindset. And I think the whole, we do things differently in Manchester, I know it's a cliche, but I actually think that that's things true. Mm. And, the you know, the, fact, the birthplace of the Liberal Party, the birthplace of kind of suffragettes and so many other things has come from Manchester. So I think that that attitude and that mindset is the best thing to come out of Manchester. I love that. What do you order at the chippy? So this is actually, uh, yeah, so this is one that, one question which I've always I've always struggled with because when I went down south, people don't have cheesy chips and gravy. Um, but up here, it's <laughs> bread and butter. So cheesy chips and gravy is the go-to. Probably, you know, now I'm, I'm not going to the chippy at three in the morning, so I probably will go for a fish and chips <laughs> yeah. now, fish and chips, mushy peas. Which greater Mancunians have inspired you so far in your career? You know, uh, Andy Burnham's, mm. you know, he's a, he's a good guy. I think, again, the... Fergie, if you can put mm. him in there as well. So, uh, so yeah, I, I'll, I'll stick for the adopting man, like, like Mank list of Andy Burnham and uh, Fergie. Fergie, it shows you how many amazing human beings end up in Manchester, though, doesn't yeah, it? And yeah. stay. Yeah, yeah, that's probably the, the the biggest compliment is that it's not a transient city; it's a destination. Mm. Is that you can come here and you feel like you can stay here. Mm. So, yeah, that's that's probably you don't have that with London, you don't have that with other places. I think it's somewhere where you can create something and then you can call it home. Oh, that's a great way to end. And just lastly, I just wanted to ask what you'd say to anybody who's listening who may be struggling mentally or is dependent on alcohol and doesn't feel in control of their life at the moment. Again, I talked about the cycle of change. Is like if you're having those feelings and thinking about it right now, it's a difficult conversation, but you've got to accept it in yourself first before you can do anything else. And then the next step is to take some kind of action. That action could be dropping me a message. It could be dropping someone a friend a message and having engaging in the conversation around it. So um, I'd say, you know, that difficult conversation yourself that you've been putting off having or you think about when you're going to bed at night act upon it and do something about it thanks Dom and thank you so much you feel very inspired and no problem Manchester has adopted well so good luck with fearless adventures and thanks for helping to remove stigma around the issues that we've been talking about today you know it's really important to talk about it so thank you no problem thank you Dom McGregor built the city by being onto something no one else was by leaning into the cycle of change and by starting a new gold rush in Manchester. We Built This City will be back on the 31st of March with Alan Keegan, the voice of Old Trafford. If you want to find out more about how Roland Dransfield can help you drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Dransfield or Twitter at rdprtweets or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 25 years on 0161 236 1122. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built This City. Thank you.